Amen and amen. Well, if you have your Bibles uh, with you, please open up to uh, John chapter 3, where we will continue our study this morning. And uh, Doubt is a, uh, is a common experience in all of life, is it not? We ourselves will have times of doubt, no matter how long we have been uh, walking with the Lord. Uh, there will be moments when, where you ask yourself, is this all true? Or a specific aspect of the Christian life, is this true? Is it worthy of my trust? We ourselves will have doubt and doubt, and we will also encounter others who will have doubts or who will be skeptical of the Christian faith. One pastor says that, that doubt doesn't condemn us, but it is a danger to our souls. We certainly shouldn't embrace it, nor should we languish in it. For unrequited doubt leaves us to be tossed to and fro on the waves of the storms of life and can lead to the ultimate shipwreck of our souls. That doubt is a, is a common experience, uh, and it is a, an experience that we must learn how to deal with. Another pastor uh, wrote about uh, five types of doubters in the New Testament. I thought this was really helpful. He says, uh, there is the, the cautious believer uh, exemplified in, in Doubting Thomas. And I'd like to make a proposal that he would no longer be called Doubting Thomas, but maybe like slow to believe Thomas. Uh, I like that one better. I'm unbiased in that, uh, in that account. But, uh, but he, he is an example of a, of a cautious believer. He was slow to believe all that Jesus had proclaimed to him. And he famously said, I will not believe unless I see and feel the wounds of Jesus myself. And then when he actually just saw Jesus, he says, okay, that can go out the window. You are now my Lord and my God. I trust wholeheartedly in you. So that's the first type of doubter. They have a, a cautious believer. Secondly, we have a confused believer. We see that in, in John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11, where, where John the Baptist, being in prison, sends some of his disciples to go and speak to Jesus and say, Hey, are, are you the guy? Like John the Baptist should have known that. He's the one who baptized Jesus, who saw the, the Spirit descending upon him like a dove, and yet he had moments of doubt where he sends and says, Hey, are you, are you the person that I thought you were? Sometimes there are those believers who are genuinely confused about truth. And John the Baptist is an example of that. The third type of doubter is what we see here in John 3, characterized by Nicodemus. That would be the curious asker. It's somebody who, who genuinely has questions. Uh, and when asking the question, they really want an answer. And they will take that answer. They will think about it, meditate on it, and then they will uh, respond to it. Now, that's what we see here in Nicodemus. We don't see his response here in John 3, but we will see it later on in the Gospel of John. Now, a fourth type of doubter would be a convinced attacker. Now, somebody who is uh, convinced or wholeheartedly believing that Christianity is, is false, and they're not asking questions, they are attacking. Uh, they, are, they are skeptical and hostile. And believe it or not, we see that in the Apostle Paul. Before he became Paul, he was Saul, who was zealous in persecuting the church until the Lord grabbed a hold of his heart 
and said, no, I have another purpose for you. You're going to serve me. You're no longer going to be uh, a skeptic. You are going to be one who wholeheartedly embraces and serves Christ. So we have the cautious believer, the confused believer, the curious attacker. Oh, I'm sorry, the curious asker, the convinced attacker. And then the, the, the fifth and final type of doubter would be the committed apostate. Be those who, who were a part of the church and involved in spiritual things for a time, followed after Christ, but then eventually they, they fell away. Where their doubts took hold of them and led them away after their own desires. And this would be characterized by Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom we see in 1 Timothy 1, verses 19 and 20, and then 2 Timothy 2, verses 17 and 18. So there are different categories of doubt, uh, but there's a, a sliding scale. And the further you go in one direction, the greater danger it poses to your own soul. And we have all come across people who are skeptical of the Christian faith. They may have doubts about the, the deity of Christ or of his resurrection or some of the miracles that he performed. And sometimes it's helpful to converse with these people who are skeptics, who, who are doubters. Sometimes it's worthy of your attention to, to walk through because it takes time to evaluate, hey, what type of doubter are they? But sometimes it's also unhelpful to converse with them. And, and you know this one, when they have one objection, you answer that objection and they move, move on to another one. They don't actually interact with what you said, the response that you gave. They just, they're constantly raising more and more things that they doubt about Christ and Christianity. Kind of that uh, the proverb that we'll read later on uh, this month as we're reading through Proverbs together, of Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5, that we're called to, uh, to not answer a fool. Because in answering him, sometimes we descend to his level and we become just like him. But then on the other hand, if we don't answer him, he's going to think he's right. And I have to address that at times. Uh, and part of wisdom in, in speaking with and addressing skeptics is understanding, hey, should I speak or should I hold my tongue? What should I do? How should I respond in this situation? And it's difficult to know what path we should take. But this morning, what we see in John chapter 3 is Jesus as the master teacher perfectly towing this line, this balance between how should I respond? Should I speak? What should I speak? How should I speak? Jesus is the, the perfect example of how to interact with a skeptic. Here in John chapter 3. And we're going to look at verses 9 to 15 this morning. And as we, as we come to these verses, this is the, the third round of dialogue in a much larger conversation uh, in John chapter 3. It goes from verse 1 through uh, verse 21. Uh, but this is going to be the end of their conversation next week or in the coming weeks. We'll look at 16 through 21, which I believe are uh, the Apostle John's commentary on this discussion. And these two men, Jesus and Nicodemus, they have been discussing how a person can enter into the kingdom of God. How can you see the kingdom? And, and what Jesus has told Nicodemus is that in order to see the kingdom, if you want to participate in it, you must be born again. You, you must be reborn from above. You must be born of water and of spirit. And all this points to the same truth that salvation only comes from God. It, we don't contribute to it with our good works. We don't go 50% of the way and then Jesus meets us halfway. 
Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, one of the most accomplished of Pharisees, everything that you have placed value in, all of your works, just take it and throw them aside because they are meaningless and even bringing you one inch closer to the kingdom. And unless you are born again from above, you will not enter, you will not participate in the kingdom of God. And after hearing all of this, Nicodemus is going to express his doubts. And in this round of dialogue, Jesus is going to explain how all that he has said prior to this is possible and how a right understanding of the new birth is dependent upon looking to Jesus in faith. And as we look at these verses this morning, we will see how to address someone who is skeptical of Christianity, skeptical to the claims of Christ. And we'll see... First, how to identify a skeptic, and then how to address that person in their skepticism. So look along with me at verses 9 through 13. That's where we're going to see how to identify a skeptic. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one, except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man." What we're going to see in these verses, how, how to identify a skeptic, is going to be two big characteristics. Number one, they misunderstand salvation. And secondly, they mistrust Jesus. We see that they misunderstand salvation. That, that's the basis of Nicodemus' question in, verses, in verse 9 and then Jesus' response to him in verse 10. That after all that he has heard so far, Nicodemus is exasperated. And literally, his question in the Greek is, how are these things possible? How can it be possible that what you are saying is true, Jesus? And that has been the running theme in the conversation so far. Yes, it's a conversation about the new birth, but uh, five times in, in the first nine verses in this chapter, this Greek word dunamai appears. It's the idea of, I can, or I am able, or I am capable they're having a, a discussion about what human beings are capable of. And they're going back and forth on this. How are these things possible? And Jesus has just said that it is not possible for man to be born again without the help without the intervention of God's spirit. And this last question, verse 9, this is the last time we hear from Nicodemus in this conversation, and we don't hear from him again until chapter 7, verse 50. He just kind of disappears. He fades off into the distance, even though he's still right there with Jesus. And Jesus' dialogue becomes a monologue. And Jesus is going to, to chide him before answering his question. He's going to say, hey, you should know the answer to this. You should know this. If you are the teacher in Israel, not just a teacher in Israel, but you are a great teacher. You are well known among the Israelites as one who knows the Old Testament. Of course, to them, it wasn't the Old Testament at that point. It was just, you know the scriptures. 
is you should know these things. And this isn't something like a, a periphery issue in the Old Testament. This is the topic for anybody to know. How do you enter the kingdom? How can you have a relationship with God? How can you be saved? How can you have eternal life? Nicodemus is a theologian who doesn't understand salvation. It's like a mathematician who doesn't understand what two plus two is. It's kind kind of a contradiction in terms. How can that be possible, Nicodemus? How can you be the teacher in Israel and not know these things? And also gives us some insight into the spiritual condition in Israel. If Nicodemus is the teacher, but he doesn't understand these things, it doesn't bode well for the nation as a whole, does it? For the nation of Israel, this is like having a blind driving instructor or a swim coach who can't tread water, right? He doesn't know what he's talking about, and yet he is the teacher. But you can't fake it till you make it as a teacher of God's Word. You can't just say, well, let me just kind of go along and figure this out. Nicodemus has been leading people astray. He himself is led astray. Because he doesn't understand the most basic and most important theological question that humanity faces. How can I have eternal life? And as a teacher of God's Word, you cannot misunderstand that. You can't misunderstand salvation. In 1973, the uh, Eastman Kodak Company was the most dominant company in the, the camera film industry. For those of you who are a little bit young, there used to be these things called cameras, and you had film in them. It wasn't just on your phone. You, you actually had to take a picture, and it was captured on the film, and you had to go develop it. Uh, and the, the Eastman Kodak Company in that year, 1973, they hired a young man named Stephen Sasson. And two years later, he created the first digital camera. Now, it was eight pounds, uh, and it... Re- it captured a, an image in a, in a fraction of a second, but then it took 23 seconds to take that information and write it to a cassette tape. And then it took another machine uh, to read the information from the cassette tape and to post it or put it onto a television screen. That was the only way to look at the photos that it took. And Sasson showed the technology to a number of Kodak executives, but they couldn't see the potential of what digital photography could become. And uh, in a New York Times interview, uh, Sasson said this. He says they, speaking of the, the corporate executives of Kodak, says they were convinced that no one would ever want to look at their pictures on a television set. Print had been with us for over 100 years. No one was complaining about prints. They were very inexpensive, so why would anyone want to look at their picture on a television set? And at that time, Kodak had a, had a virtual monopoly on the camera film industry. And so they didn't want to create this new product that would cannibalize their own business. If I create that, that digital camera, I'm going to lose my sales for camera film is, are going to go down. So they, so they sat on the technology. And see, the issue was they misunderstood their industry. They had a fundamental misunderstanding. They thought they were just in the camera film industry when they were really in the photography industry. They misunderstood what the whole purpose of their company was about. And it cost them dearly. 
Ultimately, the, the company filed for bankruptcy in 2012, and now they're, uh, they're trying to breathe life into a retro film industry of, of t- making uh, film uh, for cameras that take film. Again, if you have questions about that, students, just ask your parents. They'll show you a, a picture of one, a digital picture of one. Um, and that's really what's taking place here with Nicodemus. He believed one thing, but it was utterly false. He believed that he could enter into God's eternal kingdom by merely keeping the commandments of God. Say, hey, I'm a Jew, and then if I do these things, I'll enter in. But he didn't understand that God has always saved people by grace through faith. It has never been on the basis of works. But Nicodemus didn't understand this. Now, now it's, a, it's a good and fitting question to say, well, why didn't he understand this? If this is God's eternal plan of salvation, shouldn't it be obvious in, in the Old Testament? Like, is it, is it hidden away, tucked under some rock in the Old Testament that you, you have to have special glasses to see? And I would say no. What, what Jesus is proclaiming to Nicodemus is what was clearly taught throughout the pages of the entire Old Testament. And I would say beginning in Genesis chapter 6, in a little paragraph that begins in verse 5, if you go there, uh, it says that, verse 5, that the people were, that the thoughts and intentions of the, the, the men was only evil continually, and that they were full of wickedness. That was just before the flood, and that is what led God to flood the earth in judgment because of the sins of man. And, and just a A side note, we're just as sinful today. Man's nature has not changed since that point in time. So the paragraph begins by by stating how sinful the entire world was, and then it ends with a little phrase that, but Noah found favor with God. And that, that little statement that he found favor is equal to the idea of receiving grace. That Noah was... Uh, the recipient of grace. He wasn't better than everybody else, and that's why God chose him. No. What was true in verse 5 of the sinfulness of mankind was also true of Noah. But it was God's favor, God's grace that redeemed and saved Noah. And then in Genesis 15, we see this gentleman named Abram, or as we more commonly know him, Abraham who also had his doubts. He had been promised by God that God was going to make him a great nation. And then a few years later, he's still childless. And so in Genesis 15, he's, he's crying out to God. Okay, God, what's going on? You've promised me this, but I don't see it anywhere. And then it says in that chapter that, that Abram finally believed. And it was reckoned to him. It was counted to him as righteousness. We see the foundation of being righteous before God is not works. It is Faith. That's what we see in the Old Testament. Later on in in the book of Deuteronomy, after giving Israel the law, giving him all of these rules to keep, Deuteronomy 29, God says, Hey, Israel, you're not going to be able to do all this. You're going to fail miserably. And he explains why that's going to take place. Chapter 29, I think it's verse 4. He says, To this day the Lord has not given you a heart to, to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. So Moses predicts, hey, you're going to fail miserably. But then in the next chapter, he's going to say, 
But God is going to circumcise your heart. He's going to give you spiritual life. You don't have that yet, but He will give it to you in the future. Then Jeremiah and Ezekiel are going to bring those things together and, and point to the new covenant as well which we looked at last week in Ezekiel 36, where Ezekiel says, uh, or Ezekiel explains what Jesus is alluding to when he says you must be born of water and spirit, that God will remove the heart of stone and give Israel a heart of flesh. Elsewhere in, in the Old Testament, this is also abundantly clear. Psalm 2 looks at the sinful rebellion of the nations and the peoples of the earth, and then at the end it calls everybody to... Kiss the sun. Pay homage to the sun. Seek refuge in him because you're not going to be successful in rebelling against him. Turn to the sun. And what's interesting, it, it doesn't say try and do lots of good deeds and make the sun happy with you. It just says, no, turn to him. Seek refuge in him. Another famous verse is Habakkuk 2.4. That the righteous shall live by his faith, which is actually going to become the, the verse that the Apostle Paul is going to explain that the entire book of Romans is based upon that single verse, that the righteous shall live by his faith. That's just a small sampling of what the Old Testament teaches about being justified, saved by grace through faith, not by our works. If you want further evidence, further proof, as you're reading through the New Testament, just look at how often the New Testament authors quote the Old Testament and point backwards into the the older scriptures to demonstrate salvation by grace through faith. The Nicodemus should have understand that man is unable to save himself, but he didn't. And he was shocked and amazed when Jesus is saying to him, you must be born again from above. Shocked and amazed. And we have to understand this. Nicodemus got it wrong, but we can't. We can't afford to. There's never been a time when people earn salvation through good works. And that's important uh, to know and to understand God's plan of salvation hasn't changed. I remember speaking with uh, my children's ministry teachers uh, at one point in time, and I just threw out a question. Okay, how did God save people in the Old Testament? And I think I got three or four different answers. I'm like, okay, let's talk about this. This is very, very important that as we as we teach the Old Testament, as we look at it, we shouldn't think that people save themselves by keeping the law. They didn't. It's impossible. Remember, Moses predicted it. You're going to fail because you don't have a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. It has always been God's plan to save people by grace through faith. And we must remember the gospel. We must remember God's plan for salvation. Especially when when we feel that we have fallen short in our Christian duty. It's really easy to begin to condemn ourselves. Uh, We feel, oh, I haven't read my Bible this week. God doesn't love you more if you read your Bible that week. Or he doesn't love you less either. His love for you is based upon his grace, not on your actions. And can I get an amen for that? Because that's a comfort to me that on my best day as a Christian, I still don't deserve God's grace. I still fall short, but on my worst day, I'm still under that grace. What an encouragement. 
And that needs to be the gospel that we proclaim and teach to others, to our friends, neighbors, co-workers, to our children. Don't give them a gospel of works. It's an oxymoron, by the way. Don't, don't give them works to uphold. Call them to faith in Christ. Call them to turn from sin and trust in Jesus. Encourage and affirm faith and repentance, not outward morality. And after rebuking Nicodemus for misunderstanding God's plan of salvation, Jesus then moves on to say that the explanation that Jesus will give him still will not make sense to him. All right, Nicodemus, you've asked this question. And first and foremost, you should know the answer. Secondly, if I explain the answer, you're still not going to understand it. And we see this in this second characteristic of a skeptic, that they mistrust Jesus. This is in verses 11 through through 13. Truly, truly, I say to you, and Jesus begins each of his statements in this chapter, uh, in this conversation in that way, meaning, hey, what I am about to say is true. You need to believe it. Receive this truth. As we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, and here's the key, but you do not receive our testimony. Says, you, you haven't believed, Nicodemus. I, I've borne witness, and he says the, the plural we. Some say that he's referring to the other members of the Trinity here, God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Others say that he's speaking on behalf of his disciples. Others say that he's using a kingly we, just to speak of a general principle. But personally, I think that, that Jesus is referring to him and his disciples. As I mentioned before, uh, when these two rabbis would have come together that night, it's likely that their disciples followed them along and, and were there present for this conversation. I think Jesus is saying, our testimony you haven't received. And this is also a kind of a a throwback to chapter 3, verse 2. Because when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, how does Nicodemus speak? He he uses the we as well. Hey, well, we know this. And Jesus is going to say, okay, well, we speak about what we know. uh, And we bear testimony to what we have seen. But you haven't received that. You have not accepted what I have said. And then, verse 12, Jesus asks a a probing question and and gets to the the heart of uh, the skeptic here. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus here is reasoning from lesser to greater. If you didn't understand the earthly How are you going to understand the heavenly? And also arguing from the past to the future. If you didn't believe me in the past, why are you going to believe me in the future? That's his question. And it's a a legitimate question. And when he says, I have told you earthly things, he's speaking of this conversation. He's putting this, this category, this understanding of the new birth under the realm of earthly things that are easy to understand. And it's, the new birth is an earthly thing in the sense that it takes place here on the earth. 
And the Greek there makes it clear that that statement of what he said, it's a conditional clause that assumes that it's already been fulfilled. So Jesus has already spoken earthly things to him. And he hasn't received them. So now how are you going to receive heavenly things? And then Jesus again uses the plural form. Y'all. If, if you all haven't received what I've said before, how are you all going to receive heavenly things, heavenly truths? And the not believing earthly things is synonymous with not receiving the testimony of Jesus in verse 11. Now, in, in courtroom trials, lawyers will regularly call witnesses before a jury in order to give a testimony concerning the matter at hand. Uh, and there's different types of witnesses uh, in, a, in a court case. Uh, there's an eyewitness to someone who, who was there at the scene of the event and can provide a first-hand account of what took place. But there's also expert witnesses. Uh, someone who is able to educate the jury concerning a matter pertaining to the case. And usually they have expertise in a certain field of study or practice. They have years of, of experience in a given uh, field, and they, they are coming to educate the jury concerning how to evaluate the case. And, and while the testimony of a witness, while hearing the testimony of a witness, jurors are called to evaluate the credibility of that witness. Hey, if, if you believe this witness is credible, then you take their testimony uh, and you factor it into your ultimate decision. If, if he seems not to be credible, then you, you disregard it and weigh it, weigh it less than a more credible witness. But then the question arises, what is it that makes a witness credible? How is a juror supposed to evaluate such a thing? That's a very subjective process, and each individual courtroom has their own guidelines that they encourage jurors to follow. But here, Jesus is indicting Nicodemus for not trusting his testimony. And since Jesus is the master teacher, he, he transitions into uh, this verse, seeking to, to cite his credentials. So what Jesus is going to do next is say, hey, you haven't believed earthly things. Why should I teach you heavenly? And then, he, by the way, here's my credentials to speak on heavenly matters. Because that's a legitimate question. Jesus, who are you to say that you're the authority on, on heavenly things? Well, we see this in verse 13. This is Jesus citing his credential. This is his argument that he is a credible witness. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is explaining, hey, I am an expert witness because nobody else has gone into heaven. No one has ascended into heaven and can give you explanations of heavenly matters. No one's gone up to interview God and then come back to, to, to show the, the television stream of it. It doesn't happen. No one has ascended into heaven, only the one who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So Jesus says, I'm, an, I'm the only expert witness and I'm an eyewitness because he was there. The fact that he descended means where did, where did he start? He started up there and then came down to the earth. And then Jesus gives himself a divine title here. The Son of Man. That comes from a passage in, in Daniel. Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14. It says this, I saw in the night visions, 
And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And what Daniel is describing there is God the Father, the Ancient of Days, giving all authority to God the Son, Jesus Christ. And that's Jesus' favorite term for himself, the Son of Man. And so he's going to present this case to Nicodemus. He's going to say, are you, are you really going to believe even if I told you? You've misunderstood salvation. You don't believe what I've already said. Why should I tell you more? Why should I entrust to you more spiritual truth than what I've already given you? That's the flow of Jesus' argument here. As Nicodemus, you are a doubter, and I don't know that that's going to change. Now, doubt can be a healthy and helpful thing. But when we have doubts, we must seek to answer them from the Word of God. I was talking uh, about this with uh, our youth uh, students uh, a few weeks back. And what I told them is, it's okay to doubt your doubts. It's okay to doubt your doubts. You ever realize that sometimes when you have those doubts, you, that thought pops into your head, and then what do you do? You immediately cling to it, and what you assume that that doubt is true. When really what we're called to do is to take that doubt, to capture it, take it captive, and and walk it over to Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, what should I think about this? 2 Corinthians 10.5, we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we say, okay, Jesus, how should I think about this doubt, this thought, thought that popped into my head? How should I respond to it? What does your word have to say about it? We doubt our doubts and we take them to the word. Now, there are many things and people in life that we should approach with a a healthy mistrust, even concerning me. The Iberian, the Bereans, when when the Apostle Paul came through their town, he started speaking and saying things. What did they do? They said, "Okay, Paul, now, what was that that you said? Let me let me check that in the Old Testament. Yeah, there's a there's a healthy skepticism and mistrust that we need to have even regarding teachers, because every man is under the authority of God's word. That's what we are called to do. But what we should not mistrust is Christ and his word. That that is the one thing we, we should trust wholeheartedly and absolutely. Jesus is the ultimate credible witness. He is the perfect God man. And we are called to trust his testimony and his person at all times. And what he says here to Nicodemus, the way that he phrases this this question, hey, if, if I tell you, or how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? The way that question is raised is it assumes that, hey, it's, uh, that it's an uncertainty, but it's likely. There's different ways of phrasing questions in the Greek. Uh, And what he he lays out here is, hey, this might happen. It probably will. 
And he throws out the possibility that, that Jesus might explain heavenly things to Nicodemus, even though Jesus predicts that he's not going to understand them. And that's what we see in verses 14 and 15. We see Jesus explaining. We see Jesus giving to Nicodemus heavenly things that he probably won't understand. And in those verses, what we see is how to address a skeptic. We've seen how to identify a skeptic. They, they misunderstand salvation and they mistrust Jesus. And now we're going to see how do, we, how do I address a skeptic. Look at me at verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What we see first, how do we address a skeptic, is we point them to the Word. What we see here is, even though he chided Nicodemus for not understanding the Old Testament, what does Jesus immediately point back to? The Old Testament. He points back to the passage that we read in our scripture reading this morning, Numbers 21, verses 4 through, through 9. And what we saw there was God was bringing judgment upon Israel. Anyone remember what for? Why is God judging Israel? For grumbling and complaining. Let that be a lesson to us all. And just remind your kids that occasionally. Uh, don't grumble and complain. God will send snakes. Uh, maybe. Um, but God was bringing judgment upon the nation for their grumbling and complaining against God and against His servant Moses. And so God sends these, these serpents to attack the camp of Israel. But then also God chose to to bring about relief, healing, and life. And the method that he chose for that is a little bit of a head-scratcher initially, right? You're like, so there's snakes in the camp, and then you want Moses to make a bigger snake out of bronze and tell people to look at that, right? I think if you're Moses receiving those instructions, you're kind of like, but how are you going to help us? What is that supposed to do? And I think that the, the point of, of God's instructions to Moses is to show Moses and the people of Israel, and ultimately us today, because Jesus points to that occasion for a reason, it shows us the purity and simplicity of faith. That all you have to do to be saved is look. All you have to do is look to this bronze serpent and you'll be delivered. You will have life is what Numbers says. Very simple. He didn't give them hoops to jump through. Didn't give them works to perform. He says, no, just, just look. And by looking, you are naturally exercising faith. Trust. You are saying God, this doesn't necessarily make sense to me how looking at a bronze snake will save me from physical snakes. But I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust that what you have said, that looking to this serpent will save me. Now, that's the simplicity of the gospel. 
The serpent was held up and looked to in faith. And he, the, the serpent, that object, was the means by which God would save his people. The bronze serpent was the conduit by which God's grace was dispensed to the people. And that is intended to be a picture of what Jesus was going to do in the future. That Jesus would be lifted up on the cross in a similar fashion so that whoever gazes upon him can be relieved, healed, and made alive in the same way. Now, what's very interesting here is that in John's Gospel, Jesus doesn't speak of himself as being crucified. He speaks of himself as being lifted up. Uh, And this is another one of those words that John uses that has a double meaning. See, it has one meaning, one concept, that when Jesus was crucified, he was literally lifted up because he's nailed to a tree. He's lifted up. So it points to his crucifixion, but it also points to his exaltation. That's the, that's the, the point and the emphasis of the word there. That Jesus will be lifted up through his suffering. That is how John speaks of it. That's how Jesus speaks of his crucifixion here in the Gospel of John. So we see his suffering and his glory held together at his crucifixion. But his glory only comes after his suffering. The two go hand in hand, but one comes before the other. Now again, speaking of, uh, of things in the past, in, in years gone by, before smartphones existed, uh, if you were going to go someplace you had never been, you had to pull out a physical map, right? Uh, and I think most famous, anybody else have the Thomas Brothers Guide? I had that huge book. Uh, and uh, it had detailed maps of uh, urban areas. And if you were going to go somewhere, you had to find it on the map, and then I would use a highlighter. Okay, what do I do? What, what turn do I make over here? And, and how do I get there? You had to write down instructions for yourself. Uh, and then you had to try and follow those directions to get where you were trying to go. And uh, sometimes you would get lost. Hypothetically speaking, right, men? Just, just hypothetical. Uh, sometimes you would get lost. And then what did you have to do? You had to go usually into a gas station or some other place and say, hey, and trying to like, okay, how do I bring this into the conversation really naturally uh, so it doesn't sound like I'm too desperate and scared out of my mind because I'm lost. Uh, And you'd go in and you'd ask for directions and somebody may say something like, sure, I'll point you in the right direction. And sometimes they would point you right back in the direction that you came from. And when they did that, you're just like, oh, I missed a turn somewhere. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to backtrack. And, and that is what Jesus is doing here with Nicodemus. Right? Nicodemus is so familiar with the Old Testament. He's traveled down that road, but Jesus is saying, hey, you've missed a turn somewhere. And why, why don't you go back and look at that again? Because Jesus points right back to the Old Testament that Nicodemus knows so well. You need to go back. And he does that. So Nicodemus would, what, I, what I'm expecting is Nicodemus would go back and search the scriptures again. That he would approach the scriptures as uh, someone who wants to learn. Someone who wants to grow and understand what is written there. 
I think that's exactly Jesus' intention for him. And did you also notice that in verse, in verse 13, Jesus mentions that no one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven. He says, hey, the Son of Man has descended from heaven. But what is there no mention of? The return trip. How is he going to get back? Well, we see that in verse 14. Jesus will ascend back into heaven when he is lifted up. The means of Jesus' return into heaven is the cross. He will be lifted up to heaven only after he has been lifted up on the cross. And this is something that has been decreed by God. Verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. We talked about that word, same word from verse 7 that we looked at last week. Uh, That word must is a theologically loaded word describing something that by the decree of God, it must take place. It is necessary to happen. That Jesus must go to the cross. And in fact, this is what makes the new birth possible. This is Jesus answering that question. How can these things be? Well, because the Son of Man is going to be lifted up on the cross. He points to the word that Nicodemus should have known. And whenever we are addressing skeptics or whenever we ourselves are having doubts, no matter what category of doubter they are, what should we do? Point them to the word. Point them to scripture. I love what Isaiah 55 says. Verses 10 and 11 says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the the thing for which I sent it. God's saying, hey, in the same way that I send the rain for a purpose, to water the land and provide food for people, I send my word for a purpose. And God's word will always accomplish what it was sent to accomplish. That is what he is saying there. So as people come with questions and and doubts and skepticism about Christianity, we point them to the word. God's words are always so much better than ours. Amen? That's what we are called to to do. And that's the the first manner in which we are to address a skeptic, point them to the word. And the, the second manner of addressing the skeptic we see in verse 15, and that is push them to believe. Verse 15 says that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. We, this is a, a, a purpose. This is a reason why Jesus must be lifted up. Yes, it's for his glory, and he will be exalted through the cross. But, but what we see here is that there is another purpose, and it is to bring life to all those who believe. That is how we have eternal life, by trusting in Jesus. And those, those little words, eternal life, are words that we've probably become so familiar with that we kind of speed right past them. When, when John speaks of eternal life, 
They point not only to the duration or the quantity of the life that we receive in Christ, but it also points to the quality of life that we receive in Christ. It's not simply life without end, but it is life that is whole, fulfilled, satisfying, because we find that it is in Christ. Now, a couple of weeks ago, as, as Vincent was, was preaching, he said that, uh, that in my preaching, I, I like to, to push people right up to the edge of the cliff, to push them right up to making a decision for Jesus. But he says, well, he just comes up and pushes them over. He, he just pushes them off the cliff. And to that, I would say, amen. But we have to do both. We have to point people to the word and, and bring them to the edge of that, that decision. Making a decision for Christ. We have to walk with them through the word. We have to show them the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, the love of our Savior. But then we call for a response. We must push them to believe. Now, we can't cause them to believe. And when I say push them to believe, I mean, there, there's an urging, an imploring, a pleading. Second Corinthians 5.20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That is what we are called to do. And that is what we see Jesus doing here. There is a, a purity and simplicity to the gospel, and we see it so clearly in these two verses at the end of our passage. Trust the Lord. Look to him in faith. Don't trust it in yourself. Don't hedge your bets. Say, I'm not quite sure which one to believe, so let me try and spread things out and put a little bit of interest in both. No, we're, we're called to go all in on Jesus. This is my only hope in life and in death. The serpent was lifted up, and if the Israelites looked to that object, they were... Say, but we're not called to place our, our faith in a statue, but in a person. We don't place our faith in a statue that, that God will use to give us life. We give our faith to the God who is life. We saw that already in John chapter 1, verse 4, that in him was life. Jesus is going to proclaim it in John fourteen six. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's what he is calling us to do that we are urged to believe all of us and we are urged to push people towards him urging them pleading with them to look to jesus in faith and this morning what we have seen is jesus sharing the gospel with a skeptic and he he tells this skeptic hey you've misunderstood salvation and you've mistrusted my testimony and then he points Nicodemus, this skeptic, he points him to the word and he pushes him to believe. And the implication is that, that as a result, Nicodemus will not believe if Jesus shared greater things with him. But Jesus did share those things. He shared what he said. Hey, I don't know if you're going to believe it, but I'm going to share it anyway. And in that moment, Nicodemus didn't understand all of it. I can guarantee that. Nicodemus would have understood that Jesus was now presenting himself in place of the bronze serpent. 
Jesus was now saying, you need to look to me in order to be saved. That would have been understandable to Nicodemus. But what he would have had no conception of is how Jesus was going to be lifted up. Jesus has no, or I'm sorry, Nicodemus has no understanding that Jesus is going to be crucified and then raised from the dead and then ascend into heaven. He has no frame of, of reference for any of that. He would not have understood it. But we do. We are called to respond to what Jesus has said here. We don't see Nicodemus' response. And so we're kind of left with a cliffhanger. As I said, he, we, the last time we hear from Nicodemus is just, how can these things be? And then he kind of disappears. I'm like, well, I want a detailed account. What did he say after that? Did he turn in faith? What did he do? But I think he, he went away wrestling with these truths. And what's interesting is that Nicodemus came into this conversation as the teacher in Israel, and he left just as a student. Because when somebody else teaches the teacher, what does that make that someone else? It makes him the new teacher. Jesus has just supplanted Nicodemus as the rabbi, the teacher in Israel. That is what has taken place here. Additionally, what we see in this conversation about the new birth is that Jesus has struck a perfect balance between two truths. Regeneration, that we are not able to save ourselves, that salvation is a gift of God. If you want spiritual life, you can't earn it, you can't work for it. It's something that God has to impart to you. It's out of your hands. But then on the, on the, the flip side of that, and inseparable from that, Jesus is calling for Nicodemus to do what? To exercise faith. Hey, respond. You can't save yourself, but respond. Look to me in faith, is what Jesus is saying. A perfect tension between these two. And the proper response to understanding that salvation is in the hands of God is faith and thanksgiving and, and trust in Christ. These two truths are inseparable, regeneration and conversion. And we need to, to hold them in tight tandem when we present the gospel to others. You can't save yourself, but you need to look to Jesus in faith. That should always be our message. One other thing to kind of pull out of this is that when Jesus speaks of his being lifted up, he is pointing again to his suffering and to his glory. And his suffering comes before the glory. And when he does that, what we see in his life is the pattern for our life. The pattern for the Christian life is suffering. That we are called to suffer. We are called to be weak so that in our suffering and weakness, Christ may be glorified. And eventually, we ourselves might be glorified with him. There's a... A quote that I came across when I was reading a, a book by Carl Truman. And I wrote it here at the back of my Bible because it was uh, very profound. What he says is that suffering and weakness are not just the way in which Christ triumphs and conquers. They are the way in which we are to triumph and conquer too. In other words, if suffering and weakness are the ways God works in Christ, it is to be expected that these are the ways he will work in those who seek to follow Christ. That is what we are called to do. 
place our faith and trust in Jesus and then to follow him as his disciples. But discipleship, following after Jesus, means a lowering of ourselves. If we want to be exalted, we humble ourselves, that we might be lifted up. We, we embrace suffering, we embrace weakness, and follow after our Lord and Savior to the cross. And when he, he went to the cross, he was lifted up to pay the penalty for our sins. He rose again from the grave on the third day, and then he ascended into heaven. That is how he is lifted up. And may we praise him and thank him and follow after him. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in the person of your Son and in your Word. God, we thank you for giving us these truths to read about, to meditate upon, to try and understand, but Lord, who is fit for such things? Lord, these truths are so high and so lofty. We cannot understand them apart from your Spirit leading us and guiding us. Indeed, they will not make sense to us unless we have your Spirit dwelling inside of us. Lord, we thank you for giving us new life through your Spirit. We thank you for your Son going to the cross, that he might be lifted up on our behalf, that all who believe might have eternal life in him. And God, we thank you for the saving power of that simple and pure message of faith. Lord, it gives us hope, it gives us comfort, it gives us security, that we may have life, not through our efforts, not through our works, but simply by looking to your Son, Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we praise you and thank you and worship you now. Amen.